HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider. And I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to be sitting down with L.A. chef of the moment, Lincoln Carson, who is the chef and owner of Bon Tom in downtown L.A. He has been everywhere as of late. He is nominated for an Eater Award. His restaurant sits in the top five of the Esquire 2019 list, and he was also named Rising Star of the Year on that Esquire list. It's a fun interview. The pastries are delicious, and we cannot wait to go back. Then we are at Dangerbird Record Studios, sitting down with L.A. music legend Joel Jerome. He talks to us about being a permanent fixture in the music scene for years, offering advice to upcoming bands, and he shares some tunes on his new releases. So sit back, relax, and enjoy, and have a happy, happy holidays on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are sitting outside of the gorgeous restaurant and patio with Chef Lincoln Carson, who is the chef and owner of Bonton in downtown LA. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it is a delicious restaurant. It's a beautiful restaurant. I'm going to resist drinking the coffee and eating the pastry during our interview because it's that good. And I wanted to start with looking back, because this is such a new spot, but you are a veteran of the restaurant industry. You have been here for almost three decades, working, traveling, doing different types of food. And what have you seen change the most in your time working in the industry that has been good, bad, everything in between? Well, I think... I mean, it's an interesting question because I've seen a lot of cycles. Yeah. Right? And I think to back up, the bulk of my background has been as a pastry chef. Yeah. Um, and functioning at a pretty high level as such. Working with groups. Um, I was with Michael Mina group for eight years as the corporate executive pastry chef. So I oversaw a lot of programs around the country. So a lot of it was was traveling as well. But what I've seen cyclically is this kind of growth of, of knowledge and skill sets and then, you know, coordinating with or along, um, along with the, the peaks and valleys of our um, economy, seeing those skill sets disappear as, you know, one of the things that gets cut back is, you know, dining out mm-hmm. and some of the more um, perception of frivolous uh, spending and the legendary 2008 yeah, exactly. sort of reconfiguration of the restaurant scene. Exactly, and and how do you get ahead of that? And then you know the immediate knee-jerk reaction is, well, let's cut on those, th- cut those aspects of the dining scene that are extra, that are value-added. And pastry was usually one of those items. So then you see this, you know, immediate cutting of pastry um, chefs, pastry programs, and then what you have is a lack of training, and then suddenly. Yeah, things are good again. People are opening restaurants again, but guess what? There's no one trained to be able to do quality product. And you, I mean, you see that in all aspects of the restaurant industry. Sure, that's, that was a big one. Um, you know, and I've seen that come and go a couple of times. It's um, always a learning moment, right? Yeah. And when you're collecting that information over the years, when do you start to notice the patterns? When do you start to go? My experience is a boon here. You know, being seeing through this, going through this, and here's how I'm going to teach others that this is how we're going to get through it and come out better on the other side. I mean, I think a lot of it is when you, yourself as a professional, you have the bandwidth to step outside of just your small box, right? Um, I mean, it's very easy to get wrapped up in your individual restaurant and, you know, stay within your small circle. And I, I mean, it, I was in that for years. I think it's once you start to grow professionally to a point where you do have more bandwidth, more understanding um, of the business aspect of things, where you're looking to, for markers and, you know, how can we grow this? What else is happening in the world that's affecting affecting our business? Um, and then when you're working for maybe more than one restaurant or where you're opening more than one restaurant mm-hmm. and you're looking at trends throughout the industry... You know, I think that it, that was the moment for me, and it probably didn't come until about 12 to 15 years in. It's amazing uh, how long it takes to really have a good grasp of what it means to understand the ins and outs of running a restaurant and to be in this profession. Oh, I'm still figuring it out. 
<laughs> Honestly, I, I joke that until I became, a, you know, an owner or a partner in this restaurant, um, you know, I, I honestly had no idea what I didn't know. And it's a pretty long mm. list. Um, I want to get to the restaurant, but I want to go back a little bit uh, to where you grew up when you first got interested in food. Um, where were your early years? Who cooked at home? When did you first start thinking about food the more than just something that was in front of you? Uh, well, I was born in the Middle East. My father was State Department. Um, I was born in Beirut. Um, I spent the first five or six years of my life in the Middle East. We moved to Saudi Arabia, two different uh, two different locations, Jeddah and Dahran, um, before we came back to the U.S., which was my first time living in the United States, so I must have been six or seven years old. Um, culture so shock? I had, Any culture shock? Or you just no, like, I'm a kid. That age, yeah, like, whatever. Kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, I. but we went back again when I was a teenager, so I was in Riyadh when I was 14, 15 mm. years old. That was a little bit more of a culture shock. <laughs> yeah, I would um, imagine. But I would say, I think I was always exposed to just through location, uh, an international understanding of, and, you know, trying different things and nothing was weird because it was just happened to be where you are, right? Do um, you find food as, um, like, as a comfort or a constant in these different locations? No, but I found, like, I always liked the excitement of trying something different and mm. trying something new or being offered something new. I mean, I think I had, first time I had sushi or, or sashimi, I was probably 10, you know, back, back in the early 80s or late 70s at that point, that's, that was pretty advanced, I would say. Yeah. Um, when did you first start getting into kitchens? When did you start thinking about food as a profession? Probably not till after I was already out of high school. Um, I graduated high school. All of my friends are going to college. They all have no idea what they want to do. I entered college or, you know, applied to colleges because that's what everyone did, right? And I also had no idea what I was going to do. Um, at the same point, my parents uh, went through a divorce, and very clearly I would be paying for a lot of my schooling. So uh, at that point, I decided to pump the brakes a little, defer entry to, to a couple of the schools I had been accepted at, and I, I just worked for a year. I traveled a little bit, um, worked a bunch of different jobs, and just tried to figure out what I was going to do. Um, at the same time, I had a very close friend in high school who had entered or applied to culinary school, but was also working for that year to save up some money. And he had worked as a line cook, worked in restaurants throughout um, the later years of high school. And it kind of started to get into my head a little. It seemed like something that I could really sink my teeth and do, both literally and, and figuratively. Um, I'd always been artistic, and I thought that maybe that was a, a great direction to go, to have a skill set, have a job, and also be able to... Um, have a little bit of an artistic outlet. Did it click right away? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think once I actually started to go to school, I, I went to go check out, uh, it was Johnson & Wales in Providence, I went to go check it out with my buddy, and you know, I saw they had a, a dedicated pastry program, which at that time, in the late 80s, was very literally more artistic because they're doing all these big chocolate showcases oh, yeah. and sugar and like all this nonsense. Um, that was an extravagant time. It was. And, it, you know, it's funny because you realize now that, you know, th your art and expression can come in any form. It doesn't have to be in that very literal showpiece sense. 
So I, I, I was sucked into that and went into the pastry program. Um, and I, as a side note, my friend who got me to go to culinary school was Mark Ladner. Who, oh my God. Yeah. Mark, friend, friend of Snacky Tunes. Yeah. Pasta flyer. Yeah. And, uh, and um, you could argue that his artistic interpretation of a hundred layer lasagna or what he did with different types of Italian food is as magical as anything that you could do with pastry. Agreed. hundred percent. So I, I want to get to the restaurant, but you have such a storied career. I mean, you've just been in it for so long. Is there one story or one lesson you learned from your career post uh, culinary school to now where you learn something that you still practice today? Yeah, I think I learned it early on. Um, one of my first jobs, or my second job in New York, I, had, I answered a blind ad in the New York Times. Mm. That's how you got jobs back then. That's how you got jobs. It was either that or the Village Voice. Um, it turned out to be LeBron Dunn. And I was still like very green. I had had one job for a year in New York, um, so I was very flexible. You know, you're 21 years old. You put up with a lot. You don't realize that you know there's anything other than the way that you're working. Now. Sure. And I think what I got, I really learned more than technique or or any specific recipe or or um, process was just don't settle. Like good enough isn't. And that was just the way that everyone there worked. Um, always striving to be better than the guy next to them. Always striving to be better than yesterday. And I think, without realizing it, that got ingrained in me so hard. You know that years later, I'm working in places, and just then it strikes me: wow, not everyone works this way. Mm. Why is that? Yeah, it's 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 interesting to notice when you're pushing yourself to a certain level, and then you look over, and the person next to you may not be, and you go. Maybe maybe I am doing this the right way. Maybe I am elevating this this cuisine to an art. Um, being in the industry for so long and now having your first restaurant, I know that everyone's journey to owning and operating like a restaurant of their own is such a different process and journey. How would you describe yours? When did you decide to start down the path of, of opening up your own place? Well, I had had a couple of um, a couple of start and stop opportunities previously. Um, when I moved down to LA in 2014, I, it was um, to be part of opening Superba Food and Bread, mm -hmm. and I left after a year for various reasons. Um, I, I opted at that point not to work for anyone again. Yeah. So I I chose to start down the path of consulting and. Surprisingly, there was enough business to keep me afloat and actually wound up being a lot more business than I could handle as a single consultant. Um, Which probably speaks to your dedication to your work. Um, yeah, and I think I can I show you know, quick results. I can go in and do exactly what needs to get done. Yeah. And I've got enough experience that I, you know, I, I, can, I can help people out fairly quickly without wasting a lot of their time or mine. But... Long story short, throughout that process, you also had to learn how to hustle and how to get jobs and find work because it wasn't always just coming to your door. Um, some of it for sure, but, but not typically. And when you need another paycheck, good idea to get out there and make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, and during that process, you know, meeting people, um, owners, investors, etc., you know, opportunities came up, so I started putting together business plans, and there there were a couple of ideas that I was floating around. But this 
project in particular came out of doing a consulting job and meeting uh, meeting my investor and he already having this space and it just seemed to be seemed to be a good fit at the time amazing well look we're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to talk about the road to opening the doors and everything that goes into that we have a song from the archives here on snacky tunes on heritageradionetwork.org Just waiting here. 
just waiting here Because everything I know and everyone I love will go My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth-generation hog farmer, and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever and are only fed a high-quality, 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming, raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did, and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Lincoln Carson, and we're talking about the road to opening Bontam in downtown L.A. With your long career, were you consciously or subconsciously collecting little bits of information or keeping a notebook of when you would finally open up your own place? Like, this is how I would do something. This is how I would not do something. This is the cuisine. And if so, how did that evolve over the years? Uh, surprisingly, no. I, I never <laughs> was. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's it. Okay, I got no more questions. No. But, yeah, but you're yeah, just, the, yeah. But what's the process, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely saw a lot of what I liked and what I didn't like. Sure. And coming into this, the goal is to do more of what you want to see and less of what you don't want to see and try and fix the problems that, you know, bothered you in the industry in the past. Um, you know, it's my opportunity to try and get it right and put my own stamp on it and, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And all those times you said, well, this is screwed up. Yeah. Well, you know, now, yeah. it, now, now you've got to fix that. And so from this consulting and meeting this, the right people, um, how quickly did it come together? Because it feels, for a new restaurant, very dialed in. Um, and cohesive, and that especially for being a place that is, uh, you know, has a breakfast program, has a dinner program. Like it's not just dinner. Like it's a it's a full concept with the coffees and the drinks and everything. Um, how quickly in your mind you're like, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Well, I had a pretty good sense of the, I guess the overarching, you know, big picture concept and and dialing it in and getting the actual um, the operations part down. I mean, I've been doing that my whole career. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 what we do. We're always looking for an opportunity to improve, looking for ways to make things better. So it was just a, a matter of getting the right people, and I've got some amazing people working with me to help realize that uh, that vision. Being a pastry chef and working with other chefs who may be leading the savory program, right. things like that, 
I'm really interested to know how you applied so many years of pastry chef and running that part of the kitchen to setting a whole menu, you know, to, to that process and being like, I don't need to partner with someone. Um, what was the process? When went to the decision? How did you approach it creatively? Well, for sure, I, I did hire some outstanding savory chefs. Sure. And, they, and they are an integral part of not only the day-to-day, but also the ideation process and um, bringing a, a lot of the dishes, you know, ideas to plate, dishes to plate, putting it together. Um, there is certainly a, there is a creative process where we're all talking uh, about what the vision is and trying to direct it there. But, um, you know, I've had a lot of help. Mm-hmm. In, in getting that to the plate and in you know many cases was more kind of tweaking and poking and, and helping to finish than coming up with the original idea. So then do you see your role here as someone who's so experienced as knowing when to step back, when to step in? A hundred percent. I mean it, like if I'm doing my job correctly it means everyone underneath me is growing and, and taking on more um, for themselves, I think, you know, being able to like bring some vision and bring some direction and really help mentor is is probably more the job than than any other aspect. Did you find that in years past, you and obviously name no names, but worked for people who didn't allow for other people to help and wouldn't allow any control to be wrested from them, and ultimately the restaurant suffered or the food suffered or the customer experience suffered. Yeah, I mean, I was—I personally was pretty fortunate. I don't think I worked for anyone quite like that, but I've certainly seen, mm-hmm. you know, that, and I, I've, you know, been friends with with people who have a difficult time sure. giving, you know, letting go a little bit. Um, I mean, a little bit of it comes, I think, from ego. A little bit of it comes from self confidence or lack thereof. And I think, you know, understanding if you really want to do everything all the time—that's probably not the best way to. I don't think it's the right business. There's so many moving parts. Exactly. Um, So once you put the team in place and once you got the the people behind the scenes as well, um, what was the road to opening the restaurant? Um, How did uh, quickly did it come together? And um, what was it like to get the the doors open? I mean, it was a challenge, no doubt. I mean, we're in an old building. Uh, We're in a part of town that the infrastructure is not maybe up, as up to date as mm-hmm. it would have been you know preferred you know we had a lot of power issues we had um, multiple issues with just you know trying to connect the dots between different city agencies and if you know your city is anything like my city they don't always speak to each other uh, yeah you know. yeah um, and then what was it like deciding to do it in downtown LA. I mean, you could have arguably done it. You have been on the East Coast. You've been on the West Coast. Um, you've done Vegas. You know, you have a lot of respect in the industry. You could have opened sort of anywhere that you saw fit. What made you want to open up down here? I mean, I saw the space, and I think, um, you know, A, downtown was a really good opportunity, especially a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, it was a, kind of on the cusp. And, and growing and there's a little bit of buzz growing and now you know it's the part of LA that everyone's talking about sure. um, the space itself I think really spoke to me we've got outdoor seating as well as um, indoor seating there's multiple multiple 
sorry, a multitude of functionality there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, because I was asking a lot out of the concept and being able to do multiple things throughout the day to have a space that fit that concept, I think is, is a difficult thing to find. It is, and especially because um, you started with just dinner, right? right? And so to have a place that doesn't just feel like, okay, you can walk into a restaurant that's set for dinner to grab coffee, your spot actually feels like, I'm going to come here and hang out and drink coffee and have pastries. Um, and knowing that's part of the design, what made you want to have an all-day restaurant? You know, it's it's a much larger lift to get people to say, I'm going to come here multiple times a day, or it's like, this is just, we go here for dinner. Um, what do you love about the rhythms of having that sort of uh, approach to service? Well, I think the goal was always to, to have an appeal um, in multiple ways so that our guests got used to using the restaurant however they saw fit, mm-hmm. however they wanted to use it. And, you know, there are a lot of people that come in here in this area for work. There are some people that live in this area, myself included. Um, so I wanted it to be, you know, a little bit more um, community-centric and comfortable during the morning time. And as the operation grew throughout the day, you know, start to pull in maybe other, um, you know, people that are here for business, people that are coming to the area specifically to dine, and then culminate every night with uh, with a full-on dinner service and really kind of showcasing um, the talent that's in that building and as our style and what we want to do. Um, as you talk about of all the things that you maybe didn't know that you now know in opening a restaurant, what's been the most surprising and what's the advice you would offer to people as more restaurants open or if people think that I can just go out and do it? Um, did the waiting pay off? Do you say just go, it's better to go and not knowing anything because then you don't know uh, what mountains you have to climb? What would you tell people who are thinking about their opening their own spot? I mean, I think the pre-construction aspect of it was incredibly difficult, and the project management mm-hmm. aspect of it, and, and just coordination, um, and realizing how much of the physical design was predicated upon having the right amount of power in the building, <laughs> and you know, having the right sewage, yeah. and you know, all of these all these other systems that you just you're aware of, but you've never had to be part of the implementation yeah um, that's a big one I think if you can find a space that's a little bit quicker to pull the trigger on it's going to save you a lot of money and headache um, yeah. that maybe could go towards the operations uh, speaking of operations the food is delicious Thank you. and I want to talk a little bit about your approach of how you narrowed it down of what you want to serve and how you thought it best represented the culmination of your cuisine well I mean, I always knew pastry was going to be a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the bulk of my career has been in foundationally French restaurants. I've certainly worked for enough French chefs um, that it speaks to just technique and, and my approach to cooking on a daily basis. But I'm not a French chef, right? So I think that's the part to remember. And, you know, we wanted to be able to use these, these French foundations and this idea of an all-day restaurant but I still have the freedom to remember we're in downtown L.A. and we're in Southern California with an abundance of, of product available to us that maybe isn't traditional. So it's, you know, it's trying to maintain those, um, those roots of technique but not be mired down in the tradition. Yes, uh, a little postmodern, if exactly. you will, pulling the best from each. Um, being all open all day, have you found a favorite moment that you like 
in the restaurant? Do you have a soft spot in your heart for breakfast? Do you like it when it the the sunsets for dinner? What do you like and why? I love coming in the morning. Honestly, mm. I mean, when the bakery is is just finishing up, putting everything out on yeah. the counter, um, you see people coming in for their first coffee and their first bite. You know, it's an opportunity to you know, say good morning, put a smile on someone's face. Um, you know, really, hopefully, gets get their day off to the right start. There's this equal playing field where everyone's, I don't want to say vulnerable, but everyone's just feeling out their day and you're there to help start it off right. It was like a nice moment with like, get your coffee, get your pastry, it's going to be good. Yeah. And then we'll send you out into the world. Um, so as you look towards the future, where would you like to see the restaurant fit into the neighborhood, the fabric of the LA dining scene? Where do you hope to see the future of Bontang? Well, obviously, I'd like to see it full all the time and, <laughs> you know, bustling and not just yes. not just from a business viewpoint. Of but course. I think it feels good when there are a lot of people in that space. Yeah. And there was a point today, twice, actually, where it was just completely filled and it it feels great. And I wish I could say that was every day all the time, but it's not. We're a young restaurant. We're still trying to... I mean, there are a lot of people that walk by don't even realize we're there. Yeah. So it's, it's about reaching out to to the community and all the visitors in the area and letting them know that this is a cool place to be. Yeah, and on the days when it's not full, is it just, you just put your head down and just go to work and know that it's just another cycle? I, well, that's the funny thing about work, right? It never goes away. Never There's always something away. else to do. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for making the time and for the pastry. It's delicious. And thank, thank you. you for opening because it's a great addition to I downtown LA. Uh, if people want to come visit, follow you online, where can they go? Okay, well, the restaurant's uh, in the Arts District. We're at 712 South Santa Fe Ave. Um, and they can follow us on Instagram at, at Bontemp LA. Um, they can follow me at, at Lincoln Carson. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chef. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
This podcast, Heritage Radio Network, has plenty more. My name is Akiko Katayama, and I'm the host of Japan Needs here on HRN. By interviewing fascinating personalities in Japanese culinary culture, I try to demystify Japanese cuisine. My guests have included sake brewers, tea experts, Japanese whiskey experts, and sushi chefs. You can find Japan Needs whenever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are here in Silver Lake at the legendary Daniel Bird Record Studios. Shout out to Andy at the board and Kong for the Donuts. We have Joel Jerome in house with Gabriel and Evan as well, backing them up. Welcome to Snacky Tunes, boys. Thank you for having us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, Joe, you've been a part of the LA music scene for a, a long time. Yeah. Uh, I have it at 15 years, but I think it might be longer. Oh, yeah. Longer. Longer. Mm-hmm. Um, 98? 98, yeah. Maybe. 98. Um, so LA's obviously gone through a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you seen change? What have you seen shifted? What do you like and loathe about it? Wow, that's a big. That's a that's a, gonna be a long answer, but I'll keep it short. Um, We're uh, we got all the time in the world. You can roll on that one. <laughs> uh, let me see some pause. I'll just do some like cliff notes. Real good things happen now. A lot more venues seem to be popping up more than ever. Um, I remember it was hard. There was only like one or two places to play back in the day, so it's a little harder to get in there. Especially being from LAX area, we were from the LAX area, South Bay. So for some reason, it was harder to play shows down up, up here in Silver Lake Echo Park at the. Spaceland and all, or whatever it was, but yeah, Spaceland and yeah. So I don't know. Now there's a lot of venues popping up, a lot of new places to play, and they seem to be open to have a lot of sort of different types of music, which is great. Um, the other cool thing, especially for me as a Mexican American kid growing up, a lot more kids like me playing all types of different music now too. Not yeah. just like I'm from the South Bay, so everything was punk rock pretty much. 80s and 90s, you know, the grunge, I guess, a little bit, but it's always been a punk rock town because of Black Flag and um, <clears throat> Red Jones Cross and, you know, the just whole like LAC, the whole LAC, LAC yeah. down there for sure. And Recess Records. Yeah. I, I grew up, I mean, I'm, I'm a big FYP fan still. Todd's a good friend of mine, so he's doing great stuff down there. But, anyways, so it was just one type of thing, backyard parties, but now I just see these, like, you know, Mexican kids playing all sorts of music, playing all sorts of venues, doing cool stuff, recording themselves. You know, uh, it's that that's the really cool part about it. Um, as far as uh, the bad part that's changed, um, that's a good question. I mean, bands still aren't getting paid very well. Sure. At all. Um, so at least one thing's consistent, That's right? pretty consistent, so I guess that hasn't changed. But it's almost just not, because it hasn't changed, it's kind of weird. Um, seems to be such a proclivity for all these uh, venues and places, uh, and, and places to hear music and see music, but, like, bands still, like, get nothing to do it um great opportunity yeah and then just the influx of people from other other parts of the country right now because our rents were cheap at one point and now they're uh, kind of pricing all the musicians out in general so that's kind of a bad situation i think that's going on pretty heavily right now i mean this city is really transient for so much of the arts if you entertainment, will yeah. entertainment and things like that 
but being here since 98, what's your perspective on that? Um, is there something about people coming in, bringing new ideas, leaving the ideas while they leave town? Or mm-hmm. is it great to have some diversity coming in from people different parts of the world? I mean, that's cool, but that's not what happens. I mean, diversity, people can come in and bring in ideas. That's not what happens. It's just like people come in once a neighborhood's been safe, made more safe because the artists and musicians living there for a little while, just sure. like making it uh, less, maybe make, uh, the gangs were obviously pushed out at one point in the, in the 90s or uh, 2000s. There was, was a crackdown on all that. So, But, I mean, all it did was bring in people who didn't have no idea of the history of the place and just come in and just be like, okay, this is ours now, with no real thought about what was here before. And so, you know, a lot of artists do come in, but not the kind of artists necessarily I, I relate to. They're usually the big money artists, corporate artists or whatever, people making money on a, or entertainment people that aren't doing what I'm doing. Aren't doing what what's been coming, what's been happening here, especially in Silver Lake and Echo Park since the '90s. Like the artists have been here forever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, yeah. Even the history of this place is amazing. Even the '20s with Red Hill and like communist thinkers and artists, and um, I mean, the Black Hat as a LGBTQ yeah. you know, point of uh, gathering and mm-hmm. politics. I mean, it's cool. It's just what's what's sad is when people that made it kind of more interesting to be here and. Uh, are the ones that got pushed out, you know, and, and not to mention, not to mention the families, the, the families have been here for a long time too, who get pushed out. And so it's, it's a, it's a weird situation to see all I, these new types of people everywhere. And it's like, like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. I don't mind diversity, but it's just the way they, the way it happens is pretty shady. And I kind of blame mostly the developers and real estate people, but you know, it doesn't help when people just come here and not think about what was here before and just kind of like, okay, this is me now. But I have to imagine that some musicians and some kids have shown up with the right idea and with the right perspective and you've seen them and, and met yeah. them and actually you know Definitely. sort of fostered and and been a, a guide for those new kids for sure and the younger kids especially the kids related lollipop the burger kids from orange county or from other parts of the, the west coast they come here because of these records that they heard and yeah they're cool they have a good mentality and everything um you know like i said it's just like a lack of knowledge of the history of where you're going and kind of like being respectful of that and and most people even if they mean well they don't necessarily always think about that but their energy and their like their willingness to want to learn about it's cool and i met so many of these kids i work with so many of them yeah and they're great they are they're cool kids and they really got their heads on straight i was like i'm really kind of jealous how precocious these little brats are sometimes you know like ahead of the curve by so many on so many different levels you know you see some 23 and you go Fuck. It's like, man, fuck you. No, I'm just kidding. It's like, <laughs> I mean, in the best way, in the most no, no. supportive way possible, yeah. it's like a fuck you. Okay. But I then mean, you get involved because you do produce some of right. these bands, right? I mean, I help. I, I co-produce. I don't know. I try to bring out what they got going on a little bit. You know, I don't like go in there and totally just make them do what I want ever. I don't do that. Um, but I definitely try to get the best out of what I hear they got going on or something. You know, kind of bring that out and help them. Like, it's like being a therapist, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, creative therapists and figure out how to get the best out of them, basically. I mean, it's tough moving to any of the big cities like this where music or the arts are so personal to someone and getting trapped up in the stuff that has nothing to do with the art. And it's good to have someone to talk to and be like, you could ignore all this bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I kind of do wish there was someone when I was coming up to kind of give me some of these pointers that I wish I would have known ahead of time and not... I mean, I agree. I definitely think people should learn from mistakes and stuff like that. But 100%. there's also some mistakes I don't think people think people need to make to kind of learn from. So uh, some of the things I kind of know, a lot of things I know now I wish I was told when I was 
a, a pup, you know. So I definitely try to like give advice when asked. I also don't like give just, me uh give me one piece of advice on the O'Hara song. Um, on a, on one night grinda people. Well, about management. They always ask me about managing management and labels. It's like, how do I get a manager? How do I get a label? Or what do I? When do I need a manager? You'll need a manager. You'll know when you need a manager. Basically, you're not gonna. You're gonna be really busy. Something's gonna be happen. You got to make it happen for yourself. Kind of get something going. They'll come to you. Yeah. You're not gonna find one that's random and say, okay, I'll take you on and like you know, <laughs> nurture you from the beginning to nothing. Pay all. There's no nobody like nobody like that anymore for management. You know. So it's like do it all yourself until you can't do it anymore. Until you are too popular to do it yourself. Then you can, you'll find a manager. You'll find one easy. And basically, yeah, just, uh, I always just tell people like, always be present too. Cause people have this kind of thing. And I had it too, where like, I'm doing something, but I'm thinking about the future. Like, okay, this is a record, but I'm the real record. I want to put all my energy into is the one I get signed and get on the label. Oh, yeah. or whatever. Like there's none of that. There's none of that promised. Every single thing you do, you should try your absolute best at no matter what. Even if you think it's just gonna be a demo, down the line there's so many hours of cassettes of me being messing around on the four track thing and oh, okay these are all demos i'm just not going to play everything cool and i listen back and they're really good but if i took it a little more seriously they would have came out amazing it would have been a great like representation right. of that era so selling, like, selling yourself short is never a good thing everything you do like try to just do really good at it and you know stuff like that awesome well let's hear a song what do you want to play first this song is called there's nothing here to bother you Oh, this is the new. This is uh, the, the uh, single from Danger that Saint Dangerbird put out recently. Shout out Dangerbird. Shout out for sure. This is a good song and a great video, which we'll talk about afterwards. Yeah, sure. Um, all right, here we go. Joel Jerome live on Snacky Tunes at Heritage Radio Network at Dangerbird Record Studios. Nothing here to bother you no more 
Cause I want it to be true When I'm all inside of you Just ripping <laughs> high fives. Cool, cool. I mean, <laughs> how did you hook up with Danger Bird uh, oh, for the single? For the single? Well, I've known Aaron for a long time, from back in those days, 97, 98, playing shows up here, 2000, 2004. OG. OG, for sure. Um, and yeah, man, he's a, he's been pretty supportive of other things, too. He put me in a little project with a friend of mine, a little sound noise thing through Danger Bird, and then he asked me... Uh, uh, you know, for some singles, maybe for something like this. And I had two of these songs that were outtakes from a record that I just finished. So these, oh. is, these are all parts like the outtakes, the huh? Outtakes. Look yeah. at that. Look at what you just said and look where the outtakes went. Yeah. As the single now. Right. That was awesome. It worked out great, I think. And uh, one of them actually is from the record. Well, the one we'll play next is from the record. But um, yeah, he just uh, came up to me and uh, they wanted to do a couple singles and they were cool, man. Put his party, put a party together. It was really fun. Yeah, I mean they're uh, they're great supporters. Yes, one of the good ones. One of the good ones. Um, when you put out so much music and you were recording for so long and mm. you have demos and you got mm. albums and like mm. that, how do you narrow it down now to say this is what I want to release? Like this is the official release. That's a great question, um, and one that I'm struggling with, wrestling with daily, yearly, every day. I mean, it's a uh, that's kind of the new thing you got to figure out, especially someone like me that creates a lot of stuff. 
Um, you got to edit yourself, but at the same time, there's cool demos that you think people would like to hear somehow. I like hearing demos from stuff. Like yeah. Neil Young stuff, you know, live shows, outtakes, rehearsals, whatever. So I don't know. It's a new digital world. So that's the whole, that's the question. How do you do it? How do you release stuff? Is it really album based anymore? Is it just singles? Is it EPs? Is it uh, like subscription based services for someone like me who has like songs they can put up every month, you know, and like video performances, live things? I don't know. And studio shots. That's all going up here and I'm trying to figure it out right now. And when I do, that's when I'll make it big. That's what you need a manager for, right? Eventually. <laughs> I mean, that'd be cool. Yes. I'd love to have my Alfred to do that for me just to figure it out. But there's no Alfred right now. I uh, got to do it myself. Um, going back to being here for so long, uh, how does the city in Los Angeles inspire you uh, for the music you make and, and who you want to work with and the stories you want to tell? Man, it's vibrant, right? And so a lot of different flavors of the city. I mean, we're playing stuff right now. I'm a Mexican-American kid. It sounds a little country folk and stuff, you know, but that's L.A. That's California. You know, that's Bakersfield. That's up the coast. It's like, you know, uh, all of it's kind of like just embedded into your soul when you're here. So you get a lot of influences. I, I, I grew up on hip hop because of LAX area, Inglewood, you know, L.A. Lakers in the 80s. And so um, they're a big part of my system, too. It's just a big nice cultural uh melting pot of, of, of influences musically for sure you have the deserts you have the beaches you have the little mountainous areas all the coasts it's just amazing right so it all kind of creeps in especially with what i do one way or another <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that video um for the song there's nothing here to bother you anymore uh it's a lot of fun um, and the guy who made it has made a few other famous videos. A couple as well. of things, yeah. A couple of things. Um, but shout him out and how'd you how'd that come to be? Steve Hamft. Shout out Steve. Shout out to my boy. Um It's always nicer when the artist shouts out the other artist than me just reading <laughs> yeah. that person's name because yeah. you get that. Yeah. No, and he's a, he deserves it. He deserves it. he's a he's an old dog and he's like it's full of ideas still and like pretty creative mind. I mean, it was just when he wanted to do it, when he offered to do it, I was like, I don't know if I could afford you, dude. But um, he, you know, he, he was really cool with me. And we're, we're also I'm going to record his record eventually. So we're going to do some bartering for creative services, which is amazing. I do that all the time. Hit me up. Um, he's awesome. I mean, yeah, his videos are great. And I thought they'd fit perfectly what I do. I mean, I grew up on those videos. Those are the ones that got me. Hooked oh, on yeah. The Beck stuff early on. Like that was just Those early Beck videos were just like. What? Like half the reason I like the video, I mean, back in that music and that moment was the videos were so cool and weird. Yeah, and especially, I mean, you were out here in L.A. I yeah. grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and had no reference point. Mm -hmm. I was just like, what is this art? Who is this guy? Where are these places? Mm -hmm. Can you can you make things like this? Mm -hmm. um, but then you can, and you still can. Yeah, and he was telling us about this yesterday, right? Or the other day, he's like, he made that video. For loser, yeah. Over the course of like six months or something, like they just before he got big, he was just shooting stuff from from when they're on tour and they would just go somewhere and like drag a coffin down the road or whatever, you know, from the video. Oh yeah, he just pieced it together, do it little by little. He's got a weird little brain, brain, but it's a it's a cool one. It's know? a cool one. It's a cool one when when uh, an artist like that who's doing video meets mm -hmm. someone like that who's doing music, mm -hmm, including mm -hmm. yourself, and you're making something new together. Yeah, man, that's great. And I think he's getting a kick out of it too, which is awesome. And I'm going to try and help him put music together now and put his music out and you know, do some stuff. I mean, do you find that it is a little bit more collaborative now in like 2019 
that there are no rules. There is no way to real. There's no guide way to put mm-hmm. out music. You can right. do single with Danger Bird. You can mm-hmm. do music with the guy who made the Beck video. Like mm-hmm. it's all postmodern in like a crazy way. Yeah. If you're but back to your original question, probably that's one of the biggest changes: the collaboration and sure. things that's going on in the city. It's a little more clickish. A little back in the day, day. There's like you know, there's a little clickish of your. Your Beachwood Sparks crowd there, and your little early Mark crowd there, and like you know your other little crowd over here, but like everyone's definitely trying to get in each other's soup, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, I like I like when uh, soups mix and you get a new flavor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's cool. They bring their own thing too, and they come up with something totally different, which they wouldn't have done it on their own. So, just as long as it's something cool, I mean, I'm down. Yeah, uh, let's hear another song. What do you got next for us? This one is on the new record that is yet unreleased, and it is called "Oh Hey." about running into an old lover at the Trader Joe's in Eagle Rock. <laughs> I mean, if that isn't relevant, I don't know what it is. Here never, we go. It's never happened to me, FYI. It's just a song. Just a song about a guy who told me a story once about that. All right, Joel DeRome, Snacky Tunes. Here we go. La, 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 la. Tell me something new about you Did you do all you wanted to do Since you've been away I'm doing pretty good myself I can't complain, get some feeling fine Only problem is most of the time I always think of you Cause I've been crying all the time You were always on my mind But it's good to see you're doing fine And happy without me La 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 Everything is good It's nice to know That you're doing well I'm pretty sure You could already tell Sad I am inside Well I guess I should let you go I'm sure you're busy With places to be It's probably best Cause you don't want to see man cry Cause I've been crying all the time You were always on my mind And it's good to see You're doing fine And happy without me La 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 
Nice. So have you really ever lived in Los Angeles if you haven't run into an ex <laughs> at Trader Joe's? You know, that's what I do. I write universally, you know, songs that everyone can relate to, especially if you've been to Trader Joe's. Nothing like having uh, like a basket full of like Trader O's and be like, oh, so good <laughs> Bunch to of JoJo's. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your label that you have, mm-hmm. Psychedelic Store Recordings. Yeah. Uh, which is hands down one of the best label names. <laughs> cool. Um, when did you get that started? Why mm-hmm. did you want to get it started? What did you feel that having a label would give you that just being a singer-songwriter mm-hmm. didn't? I mean, honestly, it's like everything else that I do, and it's just through necessity. You know, it's like there's not labels, 100 labels trying to, like, put me out or something, and, like, I can just hand stuff off. And beyond that, it's like... I'm obviously a little bit of a micromanager, too, so I like to be in control of what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, and so it just seemed to make sense. At the time, I was recording a lot of bands, recording myself, and I was thinking maybe I should do something so I can put stuff under an umbrella of my own like creative thing, and uh, it just like it seems, like I said, nowadays it seems more and more you got to do things for yourself, and it's ownership of your own music is a big deal, of your own creative stuff is a big deal, so... It just seemed the way to go. It's been a slow process. I'm still trying to figure everything out. It's it's uh, it's changed. I've changed how I wanted to record, how I wanted to put music out. Still, I'm still not sure how I'm going to do it, as I mentioned earlier. But it's an outlet for basically my stuff and anything that I produce. So in the future, if I produce a record, a, a musician or whatever, I'll put it out through my label. Got and, it. Mm-hmm. Different part of your brain. Yeah. To run a label. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. We were talking about this on the way over here, too. It's just like, be nice to just get to be the musician and maybe just let other people do things. But at the same time, I like to be on top of what's going on with myself, especially how I'm being shown to people, how I'm being, you know, I guess, uh, marketed in a way. But um, it is a different, it's a lot of work because you got to do both both ends. So the creative thing, and then you got to go put the business hat on, answer all the emails, Mm. Reach out to everybody, circle back, pivot. You know, yeah, just everything. It's just and schedule rehearsals and recordings and all that stuff. So, so I know we've talked a lot about the past and the current state of the LA scene. What are you looking forward to in the future? Well, I don't know. Um, more music for sure. There's like we said, we're talking about collaborations. It seems like people are like meeting and doing something. It doesn't have to be too crazy. Like they don't, they're not forming bands that they have to just stick with. They can work with this person, work with that person. And, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to doing more producing. Yeah, and working on other people's music for myself. I mean, you produced some some uh, well-known people, La Sara, Trey Glazer, uh-huh. things like that. Um, what do you like about producing? more than or differently than your writing honestly well it's it's a whole different thing but it's a creative process i love too like i do like recording and doing all that stuff myself it's like it was out of necessity but i actually do love it too yeah so being able to go into a studio for example danger bird bring an artist in here and just be able to like have have an engineer help me out like i don't have to be plugging everything in myself it's just uh, thanks andy thank you andy thank you andy it's it's, it's a luxury i'm not too familiar with you know what i'm saying so being able to do that and then just fake focus creatively on what's going down, like the sounds, what they're doing, what they're playing. It's a whole different kind of creative process I'm really digging. And it's 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 through a different filter because it's not my own music. I'm not like 
all in my head about what I'm doing or what, what I'm sounding like or whatever. I'm kind of more focused on an external creative like uh, influence. And it's, it's like, I don't know, it's just it's a different way to be creative that I really enjoy. Uh, it allows you to add a lot of the things that you've discovered over the years and a lot For of sure. the advice you have to music sure. without it being your music. Right. And you could say, maybe do this. Mm-hmm. Maybe do this. Maybe think about it this way because... Five years ago, I saw this, and right. it, it worked or it didn't work. Oh, yeah, work. and I do that all the time because people think they know things. I'm like, look, you're, at this point, you're splitting hairs, and I've been there. Yeah. You're not going to remember any of this, right? You're not going to remember that tambourine being, like, 2 dB louder. or so. It's not going to It's not gonna be worth it. Oh, my God. I'm walking over that tambourine. <laughs> I like, am walking. But, yeah, no, it's a different thing. And like, and the other thing, too, is working on other people's music is different than my music. Sure. So it makes, uh, makes me think about music differently, too. Does it make you think about your music differently? Uh, as well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it doesn't, like, necessarily change anything I do for myself I'm kind of figured out my thing and I kind of like just do a thing that I kind of know I do I guess <laughs> and it's like because I'm just good at what I do for myself but um, I do learn things from working on other bands for sure that I then bring over to myself and also seeing a dynamic because primarily being a solo artist mm. seeing bands work together in that creative process yeah well that's a different thing for sure I, I remember those days too like but that's where you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen you got to do a lot of personalities and Oh yeah, the therapist side comes out on those things. Yeah, mm. a lot of bigger tambourines. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was like, could the drums be louder? The drummer's like, could the drums be a little louder? And then the bass guy's like, can you trump the bass? Yeah. I can't really hear my vocals, and it's like, so, it's appeasing a lot of different people, but it's fun, man. It's fine. Uh, what's on the horizon for you? What do you got coming out next? Well, I'm um, figuring out my life. I'm finally gonna get it together in 2020. That's cool. what I say every year, but 2020 is gonna be the time I do it. Uh, I think I had a really nice vacation from 2000 to 2020, and I need to put my uh, pedal to the metal, the rubber to the road, as they say, and pretty much really start releasing music constantly, you know, as much as I can, just because I don't want to wait for anything. Put those demos out. Just put them out. Yeah, put, put them out. out. I'm going to do a lot of EPs and singles, too. Like, I'm rethinking the whole album thing. It's like Yeah, the album's... Uh... I don't write like that. The too. album's a tough hang in 2020. It's a tough for a lot of reasons. And for my own workflow, I don't really write 12 batches of songs and then record them. It's like I record every day or every other day a bunch of different things, and I have to compile them, maybe like mixtapes or something. We'll see. I mean, uh, I don't think I've ever heard of a singer-songwriter mixtape. That's actually, I'm thinking about that a lot because my music is a lot like that. Like yeah. early on, 97, I'd give tapes to people on my music, my albums, it just sounded like a mixtape because everything was way different from each other. It didn't sound like the same thing. I'm down. I feel like if it worked back then, might as well just do it again, you know? Yeah, and then people go like, ooh, this is fresh. This is a new idea. You're like, sure. Sure, guys. So now I really got to do it before they get on this. Yeah, because this thing is this is on the record now. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Well, we want to get one more song in, but cool. where can people find your music? Where can people go? You have a band camp. Band camp. Pretty uh, prolific. Pretty SoundCloud. That's Joel Jerome. You can Google me. Just Google me. Just Google me. It'll. I'll be there. I'm all right. There. Uh, what's the last song? The last song was called I Don't Mind You. Ooh. Was this also something you said at it's about, Trader Joe's? It's about, you know, a person that, like, has a crush on you and, like, they come around, they're always hanging out and this and that, and you're like, ah. And then you think you're too cool for it, but then you end up kind of liking them. Yeah. I don't know. At, not at Trader Joe's. This is at the mall. Okay. At the um, Colorado, on Colorado, the Target on Colorado. The one at Eagle Rock? Yeah. That's Sweet. The one. Uh, also, great place to get Christmas trees. Oh, and then back rubs, back massages on those yeah. chairs. Yeah, oh yeah. And you can ride around in like this motorized <laughs> elephant. <laughs> that should be a video for somebody. Yeah, uh, I want to thank you to Danger Bird Records. Thank you to Heritage. Shout out 
to everyone. And here we go, Joel Jerome. We'll see you next time. I can tell that something's wrong Cause I'm getting much too lonely when you're gone I should push you far away But you're coming back for more again today But I don't mind is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.